This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. And today we're going to be talking school referendums. Door County voters have historically showed incredible support for spending on K-12 education, particularly in the last five years. Since 2018, Door County voters have approved $67.7 million in referendums for capital improvements. In 2018, Sevastopol voters approved a $25.1 million referendum. Southern Door voters approved $6.7 million in facilities upgrades. And Gibraltar voters approved $4.2 million. In 2020, Sturgeon Bay voters approved a $16.8 million referendum to upgrade its facilities. And just this last fall, Southern Door voters approved $14.9 million to build an indoor training facility. Now, Gibraltar School is seeking approval for what would be the largest educational referendum in the county's history. On April 4th, voters in the district, which extends from the village of Egg Harbor and the town of Bailey's Harbor on the south end to the northern tip of the peninsula, will vote on whether to approve a $29.8 million referendum to tear down and rebuild the middle school portion of the K-12 school. There's a lot more to that than just tearing down and rebuilding. And to explain a lot of this today, I have Superintendent Brett Stousland and Gibraltar School Board President Stephen Seifer, and who is also a former superintendent at Gibraltar School. Steve and Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A lot of perspective here between Steve's experience as a former superintendent, spent a lot of time in that building, and then as a school board member. And then, Brett, you joined a Gibraltar School District, was it last summer? Yes, July 1st was my first day. July 1st at Gibraltar. And right away, the school board said, hey, we're going we're gonna to go for the largest referendum in the county's history. Go for it. <laughs> well, almost how it happened. No, it was never on the radar as far as when I was hired and what happened early on in July and in August I was approached from our maintenance person and and others saying we have some issues with windows, we have issues with some hallways, some HVAC, some plumbing, some electrical. And I asked the board if they would approve a facility study. And part of that study also was for safety and security reasons. Having an older building, it, it does not lend itself to the best school safety. Um, and safety and security isn't just doors and locks. It's also our air quality and the, the movement of our students throughout the building. And the company that did the facility study was uh, C.G. Schmidt, and they came back with a report in October, and they laid out several different options for the board to consider. And they had seven different options, and one of them was for us to piecemeal and kind of band-aid every problem. And the problems are the ones I mentioned, but also our ADA compliance with ramps, that are non-compliant in certain hallways that aren't wide enough. So we listened to that, and if we would Band-Aid and just try to fix the pieces over time, the cost was going to be above $50 million, and that option did not sound great to us. Their seventh option was to tear down the middle portion of our, our school, which includes the 1930s gymnasium, some 1950s spaces, along with some additional add-on spaces. And the reason they're suggesting that is that would take care of about 90% of our of the issues that was in their 100-plus page report. And that, that cost to that 
based on replacing and adding enough square footage that is needed now since we right now do not have space in our school for additional classrooms is that $29.8 million referendum. So the, the school board went from that facility study starting in July to referendum in April about eight months later. That's a pretty quick turnaround for something like this. In Sturgeon Bay with their referendum that I mentioned earlier and Sevastopol with their large referendum, those kind of formulated over two, three, four years. I think Sevastopol's might have actually been in discussions for even longer. That provided a lot of time for education, a lot of conversations with the public. Why move so quickly with this one? Actually, I'll have Dr. Seifert talk about the history of kind of what we call the phase one and some of the history of of the projects that have happened in the past, which will bring us to kind of why now. As Dr. Southland says, in his first days at school, he did a walk through the facility. And in his walkthrough, he sees a facility that's the, the amalgam of several different additions, several different parts of a building that have been added to a core of a building. He saw the same, with the exception of our most recent high school renovation, the same building, the same added additions that I saw in 1998. To hear the statement that this is a kind of a quick rush from a study to a decision to a referendum is I think a, a very, very partial glance because the school board has been looking at the school and its facilities constantly. In the 90s, when the last additions were made to the school in 94, the concern was how long will the 1930s part of our school, the old gym, how long can we maintain that? How long can we maintain the 1950s? The board's concerns have really been in finances in two perspectives. How will we always assure that we have enough financing for constant and continuous education of children? And the second is, how do we maintain a facility that over time will have an eventual need for replacement? The first priority has always been instruction. The second priority doesn't mean we ignore safety concerns or the facility, though has been when and how do we ask the community to pass a referendum for a building renovation or addition. We've been looking at the facility as a school board constantly over time. As we look at it now, we come to the realization that the 1930s and the 1950s additions to our school have outlived their viability. That there are parts of that addition in the 50s that house the infrastructure of our school. All of our plumbing and electricity flows through that out to the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and our newest renovation. The vitality of that infrastructure, though, is, has been used up. Well, as you know have from, from sitting on that board for a while and, and serving as a superintendent, it's one thing for the board to know these things. It's another thing for the public to be aware of those conversations. So that is the part that that long-term educational process and communicating it to the public is the thing that maybe people are saying, hey, where did this come from? And as somebody who's pretty engaged with the school myself and was an employee there for a long time, I felt like this came a little bit of like, whoa, when did this happen? And because it was not a part of the discussions on a public level when the high school IMC renovation happened in just four years ago. So that's where that question comes from is like, all right, how did this move so quickly and why move it so quickly? And I think part of that from Brett, what you've told me in a previous conversation is just knowing that there were some maintenance things that just need to be handled one way or another. And if you don't move quickly on that, then you're 
you're spending money that you're going to respend later. But maybe you could explain that a little bit about why do this in such a short time period? Because the question was only formulated a month and a half ago. Yeah, we, we, the, the question for the referendum. Correct, and we started looking at the first draft of the the question in in November. So okay. it came pretty quickly after the facility study. How the state operates schools allow allowing schools to go to referendum in odd years you can only go in the spring vote and then even years you can go twice you can go spring and and november so and what is the background behind that because that was a that's fairly a, recent change right it's correct and i my quick comment to that is i think what they didn't want because a lot of schools were going to referendum and they were going to referendum multiple times and so now if you don't pass the referendum you have to wait there's a waiting period before you can go back to referendum so it was and, a way for the legislature to you slow say, down. You can't, if it fails in April, you can't just come back in November. Right. For whatever reason, they didn't want schools asking for either operational referendums or facility referendums as frequent as they've been happening. So mm. that's part of our rush. The other piece was financially and trying to be fiscally responsible to the, the district and the community is we have that 2018 referendum, that debt is falling off. And so the impact to our taxpayers to put on new debt is lessened because of that drop that would happen. Now, some will say, well, that drop is just taking away from my, you know, I'd be paying less taxes. But we've also just saw our mill rate go from $3.42 last year to $2.98. You know, it's per $1,000 mm-hmm. value. So a drop of 44 plus we over levied to pay more of our debt down. So there was an additional drop with that, and that's what brought that below three dollars. And mm-hmm. then adding, putting a new debt on. So this twenty nine point eight million dollars would would add, and this is a conservative estimate right now, but nineteen cents per thousand dollars. So it would put the mill rate back to about three dollars and seventeen cents, which is still you know a good good amount less than the three dollars and forty two that they were were paying previously. Sure. So the timing of that, kind of all those pieces, played into that decision. So essentially what you're saying is the impact taxpayers will see versus previous years is pretty minimal. Now, if taxpayers were able to go back to the baseline with if that mm-hmm. debt fell off, I mean, then it's more noticeable, but it's still pretty low. You had mentioned that one thing in, in Gibraltar School District with the property values, what they are, it's not as huge a hit to individual taxpayers, you know, per per thousand dollars of property value. Correct. So for a $300,000 home, it's an impact of $57 a, a year. That's what it converts to. And again, that's a that estimate of $0.19 cents per thousand is a conservative estimate from Baird Financial. Um, okay. They always are very conservative in the numbers because we'd hate to have the referendum pass and it be more than that. And so that's why their numbers are, are very conservative. But kind of back to your original question of absolutely, there's some really big ticket items that we're finding out there's leaks in our heating system that we have to refill refill the pipes. It's a closed system, but somewhere it's leaking and we cannot find where it is. And it's somewhere probably under the, the old gym. <laughs> and, and there's huge cost to that. Some of our electrical is going. And so to Band-Aid those was kind of what our construction company had talked about as far as the Band-Aid approach would cost us over time well over $50 million versus just tackling it. Okay. And so what are some of these, you mentioned like the, the, the heating system, what are some of the other things that you just determined, like at some point we have to tackle these projects. So that, that drove this decision. 
when, when we think about the urgency of how this question has come up on the, on the ballot, I think that we should look at this in terms of the community's conversation. Because for, I would say at this point now, years, in the board's conversation with parents and community that visit our school, we hear from our graduates in particular who come back to the school and with fondness say this was a good school, it was good enough for me when I was here. And then we review the fact that that might have been 15, 20 or more years ago. We have, as a school board, we ride with the idea that our building is good enough for today's instruction of children until we learn some facts. And this latest facility study just renewed things that we knew. In fact, now talking with our graduates coming back in our survey of the school, taking a, a walk through, they're also seeing a, yeah, that, that is, that's not quite good enough, is it? This is a pretty small, this is overused. We can do better. It's the kind of conversation that we've been having, but it's not been formalized in the sense. The study allowed us to say as a school board, there are now things that we're seeing that are urgent. There are windows, there are doorways, there are security issues, there are traffic pathways, there are gymnasium spaces, there's a cafeteria kitchen that serves food every day of school day, but the traffic pattern to get to that is not what we really want to have. That is a cafeteria kitchen directly across from our high school math class, hmm. where Kids in classroom are hearing kids in the cafeteria. We'd like to do that differently. And given the opportunity to do so, and now an urgency of looking at the facility study, much of our past conversation says it's no longer good enough, that the quality of our education is requiring us to ask the community for the opportunity to do better. And in addition to that, this happened after we spoke a couple weeks ago, but the last rain that we had there was flooding in four parts of our school. One, the, the worst part was in coming through the roof of the band room. And as our custodial crew looked at it and went on the roof, there was kind of cuts in the roof. But when they were underneath looking, there was a crack that goes the length of the whole roof. So you look at that replacing, you know, the, the structure to that as far as the covering. That's a huge expense. We have a, a cost of a chiller that's on its last leg is at the $450,000 cost. If we start making repairs, let's say just safety and security and try to compartmentalize parts of our school, once we hit the 25% change, if we're making that change, the whole area has to be ADA compliant in today's standards. So then there's additional cost to that. And that's just making the spaces up to code, but that would also include sprinkling, meaning adding sprinklers, fire sprinklers to the whole section of that building mm-hmm. um, and all those things, you know, carry a cost. And, and uh, you know, the, the gymnasium is something that, that is a large part of this referendum. Roughly almost half the cost. Correct. The gymnasium yep. of that $29.8 million, about, I think it's $13.9 million is tied to replacing that gymnasium. And, you know, as a former coach there, that gym had to go 35 years ago, <laughs> but it's, but I also love that gym. It's like, mm-hmm. the, it's the old gym. It's, uh, you know, you could call it the Voskul gym for, for Dave Voskul, who lit up scoreboards in there 50 years ago. But it's not very practical for really anything but very basic elementary physical education classes and, and sports. It's smaller than a regulation court, even in the main gym. And the other thing is a lot of the things you're talking about replacing are underneath or associated with that gymnasium area. So 
kind of summing up what some of the things you had said earlier, having taken the tour, having spent a lot of time in that building throughout my life, it sounds like a house remodel where you're saying, all right, we're going to fix this, fix this, we'll get to this, we'll do this. And pretty soon you realize you're just beating around the edges of this, what really needs to be a teardown and rebuild. Mm -hmm. Is that essentially what the school board came to in this decision? Yes. Yeah. And your analogy of the house and, and doing something about repairing, renovating the house, or whether that's the family car that's been running and, and transporting the family on a basis that is good enough until it's finally the, the wheels fall off. Or you, you realize that the leaks and the air conditioning and the heating are no longer successful in keeping the, the, the family comfortable. Right. And I would say keeping with the, the house analogy, because some of the questions that if people have asked or comments is that how come we just went tear everything down, including the elementary portion of the building, which was added in the late 1980s, so I think 86, 87, 88. And it's like if you put a four-season room on your house 10 years ago, you want to tear that down when the rest of your house is almost 100 years old because that still has life in it and has value. And that's, you know, we envision that. The board looks at it, too, as that's a kind of a phase three. So phase one being what happened to the high school IMC in those classrooms, and then kind of phase two is this middle portion. And then when when the time is right, the, the elementary would, would need some of those updates. So the elementary wing is about 35 years old. Mm-hmm. Is that the lifespan we're looking for in these buildings now? Shouldn't we be looking a lot longer than that? We should. I mean, you're looking at least 50, 50 years on, on, on buildings. So, Even but, but we're talking about ones. replacing the elementary area, which to a lot of residents probably seems like the new wing. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, that's the, that's the, we're talking about kind of a vision for the district. That would be the the next piece after this. And it's not, next doesn't mean next year, but that is, that middle section takes care of more than half of our, our needs. And then it would be elementary. And there's a few areas in the high school that didn't get touched during that last referendum, like our tech ed spaces and some of the locker rooms that attach to the current main gymnasium. But that would be what's left after this project. I think it's important that we, as the board discusses the facility, that we say that the elementary wing eventually will be replaced. And we begin that conversation that it's not today, it's not next year, but eventually its concerns will rise to the the level of must be replaced. Today our needs are in the heart of the building, in the 1930s, 1950s, and some of the 1970s. Go back to the gymnasium for a minute because when we walk into the school and we see the, I'll refer to it as the old gym, and now we refer to the 1970s as the new gym still. <laughs> but think of the footprint of where the 1930s gym is. But in looking at what will be there in the future, it's not the same usage of the space. There will be a gym, but there will be much more added into that footprint that elevates that cost to more than what a gym replacement would be. Yeah. Look at it as it is a school commons area something we do not currently have anywhere in our school. Look at it as a relocation of a cafeteria so that elementary children don't have to walk the length of the building to go to lunch. Look at it as a space for community to meet. Look at it as a space where really in the heart of the building, the core of student activities can be formulated. Yeah, and to add to that, that community space as the board uh, members and myself we went and visited several schools in the area that have had recent builds okay. and not even just an area we were in the beaver dam area ripon De Pere, green bay sevastopol 
And what, what we're seeing in those spaces are these community-type spaces where kids can hang out after school, where parent groups come in and meet in these spaces. And they're, they become flexible spaces, so they can be used for more than one, one purpose. But it, thinking about our students, they don't have a place to hang out. I mean, they're waiting for their play practice at night or waiting for their next sport practice because they have the late practice that night. Believe me, I know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> Gibraltar doesn't have a comment of any sort. You don't know that, that that exists in other schools until you start traveling to them. And occasionally you go to another sports game, but especially when I was coaching, you would realize this. You go, oh, they have this huge entryway area where this is where all their students are hanging out. It's not... In many cases, it is their cafeteria, but in many cases, it, is, it isn't. It's a separate space that's just for gathering because, you know, in my experience at Gibraltar, you just spend your time getting kicked out of the library for being too loud, and then you're in a hallway, <laughs> and now where do we go? There really wasn't another place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can totally understand where you're coming from on that just from traveling around, and your students see that. Like, our, I can't tell you how many schools that I walked into, gyms we walked into, locker rooms, and, and Gibraltar has upgraded their locker rooms a little bit since then, but where the kids would just draw, drop and wide-eyed at the amenities at some of these schools. And we think of Gibraltar as a, a rich, wealthy district, at, at least statewide it does. But from a facility standpoint, even small towns that aren't wealthy have far surpassed some of the amenities at Gibraltar School from a, just an aesthetic standpoint. I would Correct. say that pretty confidently. And it's not just the students that see it. It's the parents of the children who play on our away games that come back to us and say, I was just at the school, and you can name the community or school. And boy, we we should be considering building, replacing, renovating our school to have what we saw there. Parents understand the need. Parents of athletes, in particular, understand our need today. Yeah, and I I would say something else too that with the gym space and the courts, it's not just about oh we need more courts, but there's always pressure on most schools because of especially during the winter for girls and boys sports who want from fifth grade on up gym time. Mm-hmm. Um, we want our kids to take rigorous coursework. We want them to be involved as many things as they can, but they're getting home sometimes nine, nine thirty at night. Mm-hmm. And because they've had a late practice and they, they couldn't go home in between. So they just hung out at school, right? So to create that space, but also to create enough gym space where we can say, look, all of our teams can practice after school. They can have access to the late bus at 5.30. They can get home wherever they're going, and then they're home for the night to work on um, mm-hmm. what they have. Or they could go to, if they're in forensics or in the plays, they can go to 6 o'clock play practice versus an 8 o'clock mm-hmm. play practice, and then they can get home after that as well. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. I can say, like, even w- when I was coaching, you'd have, you know, your high school teams would split a court. So you'd be doing varsity basketball or a varsity level sport on, on a half court of the main gym because the old gym's pretty much not usable for, for any high school athletics. But that meant 
the other thing you could do is, like you said, split practice. One one team practices right after school. The other team practices at 530. That's one thing in a dense district where kids can get to and from, you know, they might live generally within maybe a mile or two of the school. In Gibraltar, a lot of these kids live a 30-minute drive from the school. So if they're practicing late and they are an underclassman without a license, they're either getting a ride home from a teammate, possibly, or their parents are having to drive maybe from Gills Rock, from Ellison Bay, from the outskirts of Egg Harbor to go pick up their kid at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. So it, it, it takes a strain. When my wife and I were searching for houses, when we moved back here in 2017, she would find some cheaper, bigger houses in the northern end of the peninsula. And I said, you can't do it. Can't go north of like Green Road and Sister Bay. <laughs> She's like, why is that? Okay. Because nobody's going to want to be our kids' friends. Because <laughs> nobody's going to carpool with them all the way up to Gills Rock at the end of the day. We're going to have a limited access because it's just, it adds so much commuting and driving mm-hmm. back and forth for so many school activities. So having that, for those who are unfamiliar, Gibraltar rents a late bus. I know that's not necessarily Correct. automatic at all schools, but at 5.30, the late bus will bring those kids home. So that's where it saves parents that drive is you have this extra bus. You do not have a 730 bus to take kids home after a late, late practice. Correct. And we just heard at one of our public coffees that we've been having for to spread information where the parent was still, her kids are now out of school, but still kind of frustrated thinking about she would have to wake up her younger children or couldn't put them to bed because she had to drive from Ellison Bay to get, you know, to pick up their child who had the late practice and then drive them all the way back. And um, mm-hmm. just hearing that really resonated and, and, again, makes us think about what we're trying to do is for the benefit of our, our students and parents. And if you talk about those, those same parents have that same struggle just on game nights, getting their kids home much later. So if you can eliminate some of that, it's, it's a big burden off a lot of families. Ath- athletics is, a, is obviously a, an important driver of this project. We need more gym space. We need uh, improved facilities for our athletics. But space for academics also drives this. One of the things that we've observed in going to other schools is that a, a contemporary classroom is not only just a classroom, but it has breakout spaces for small groups of, of students, for students who need extra tutorial, for students who need have challenges and need extra help in special education or where you break the group, the class into small groups, and they have an opportunity to be in a, a space where they can hold their conversation and not be interruptive of, of others. Our current construction does not have any of those spaces. Our academics and need for improved spaces and newly conceived spaces also drives this. As a school, I don't know of any school that would say, we have ample storage, we have ample space for any new program unless it's a school that has not yet opened and cut the ribbon. (laughs) Our school has long outlived any idea of having enough space. As as we have a stabilized enrollment, we have filled all of our space, current spaces at school. Well, let's talk about that for a second because that's a question I think a lot of voters would have. You have a school that overall enrollment is probably down 20 to 25 percent from the peak number of students that would go back I think that was right around 97, 98, 99, and it's been declining and then it's stabilized at roughly, I'd say, 25% below that level. So why does a school with 25% fewer students need more space today than it did 20 years ago? And let's, let's just draw the, the, that trend line correctly, though, that it, we were declining in enrollment. 
and now we have stabilized. We anticipated that enrollment would be in the 480s or 490s. Several years ago, we anticipated that number for today, but it's not. Our, our family membership, our, our birth rate, our families moving in with children has brought our enrollment back up above 500 and will be above that number for some time, we anticipate. We're, we're, yeah, we're just under 550 right now. But that's, that's with the addition of a 4K, 4K program. Correct. Yep. In which yeah. we are adding another grade level. But as we look at our, at our programming and we look at what it is that we're providing for children and we make a comparison to the mid-90s, we continue to add programming for children. We continue to add interventionists, for example, to assist with children who need extra teaching, a second round of teaching, say in mathematics, in order for them to become proficient in today's assignment or in the unit of study. We've continued to add things to the service of our children that we didn't have in the 1990s. We now have a school nurse on site. In the 90s, we did not. And I would say to that point, too, we've, we have had an increase and we're ab- above the state average in, in special education students. And those students, some because of their unique needs, have have different breakout areas where they they get most of their instruction is in the classroom, but there's times where they, they come out. But we have spaces that have sometimes three different teachers in the same room in small groups where before there might have been one one person right. in that room or one, one teacher. I think an eye-opener for me walking around the school recently, really in, even in the 10 years since I was in, in the building all the time and in educational settings all the time, has changed dramatically. And especially if you go back to, like around the corner from my house is the old Appleport School, which was one of the early elementary schools in, in the district. And one-room schoolhouse with the bell up top. Everyone sat in rows and desks facing a chalkboard, and that was your classroom. And it was multiple grades in there. And basically that was the, what a classroom looked like when I graduated high school in 1997. Rows of desks, chalkboard in front. Maybe if somebody was really into technology, they had an overhead projector. <laughs> and that was about it. When I walk around the school now, the classrooms look dramatically different. You have the multi-age classrooms, you have those breakout areas, you have so much more technology, we like technology for the longest time. Again, when I graduated was rolling a TV into the room and the substitute teacher falling asleep on a desk in the back while the <laughs> video was played. But it's so different now when you go into the classroom, I'm, I'm shocked. And also I, I realize that I am going to be hopeless when my own kids go to school because I'm not going to be able to help them pass their grade because they're <laughs> going to pass me by. But the, the change in education is really eye opening. And it's, I think we all fall into, unless you're in education all the time, it's very easy, and I do it myself, falling into the, well, it worked for me. Why do they need that now? Why do they need a computer now? Why do they need iPads now? I learned how to type on a typewriter. Well, if my son went to school, though, and he was taught in a typewriter, I'd probably be like, all right, that's cool as a gimmick, but you know, that's not going to prepare you for, <laughs> for life. So there's so many things that have changed and it's just this evolution. And I think we generally tend to get stuck in what worked for me. It's good enough for this. Sure. But education is different and it should be different. Yeah. If it weren't different and evolving, I mean, then we're stuck. That, that's a bad sign. But what are some of those things that, that are different about classrooms today that are needed? Because I've seen things look, some of those classrooms being used for three, four purposes are glorified closets. Mm-hmm. They, they are. And, 
uh, as an aside, we do encourage anyone that's interested in seeing the spaces we're talking about. Uh, we have tours and information sessions March 9th at 6 o'clock and also on March 15th at 6 o'clock. And if someone is really interested in coming and those days don't work, if they contact me at, at school, my information's on the website. We have a video on the website that they can see some of the spaces we're talking about. But thinking about the new space that's that they just built in 2018, walking through this morning, first period, there's classrooms. There's kind of two classrooms and then a breakout space for kind of in between those two rooms. Every one of them had kids in doing something different. And four of them had kids on a virtual class that they're taking. We have several kids taking sign language through mm-hmm. through CESA 7. Another one was taking a, an advanced AP course that we don't offer currently. So I think when we think how a school changed, you know, that's an example of, and, and those students can't be taking that course out in the open library because they're in a two-way communication with someone on the other end. And sure. so it's the, you know, the, the noise and, and conversation. But so that's kind of one example of those new and flexible spaces. And when we think of technology in the classroom, and sometimes what we, what we see in our, in our memory are rows of students at a computer bank or at tables with their computers in front of them. Today in a technology-wise classroom, we don't see kids congregated. We see them spread out. Hmm. We see uh, students taking their laptops or their Chromebooks and, and moving away from or clustering in small groups to work together. But the rows, sitting at your rows, uh, chairs in rows or desks in rows, now really explodes and, and you move your desks out so that you have a conversation. You can have a con- conversation with others who are looking at the same material that you're looking at, which may be different than what students in other clusters around the classroom are looking at. Mm-hmm. So the, the small postage stamp classroom, which could hold students in rows of desks, now does not hold those clusters. We need those kinds of breakout spaces. Mm-hmm. We, we need it also so that we can give students concepts today of mental health, the opportunity to have some privacy, some opportunity to, to work independently if they don't want to work together, uh, or if, if, their student, if their learning needs don't comply with that. And, and we have a service that several of the other schools in the area have called Stride, which is mental health, really just not just mental health, but just counseling service that can come into our building. And they, they require, obviously, a private space. And they are, the demand for that is beyond what we're serviced for, which tells you there's a there's a high need for it. And we've added an additional person even that, and again, it's an outside group and kids and families sign up for this, but it, they don't have to travel to Green Bay to get this service. And we're, we're putting them, like we were trying to figure out which closet could we you know, create that's a, a private space. And they're using a conference room that used to be used for other things. And now those other things have got shifted somewhere else. And it's just this, you know, dominoes of where do we create a space? And mm-hmm. uh, having a room for, for nursing mothers is something else that we required to, to create and we want to create. But again, it was a closet that we emptied out and it's not ideal, but it works, but we can do better. And I think that's part of this conversation is that we want the best academics for our students. We want the best athletic spaces. We want the best instructional spaces moving forward. And, and we know we can do better. And we think this, this referendum will allow us to, to do better on all, all fronts. 
I've, I've talked to a bunch of people throughout the community. I, I generally ask people, what do you think about the referendum <laughs> question? Where, where do you stand on it? And what do you know about it? And several people I've talked to, including some former school board members, actually said their biggest concern is that it's not enough. That, you know, and, and a couple of people have said this about the gym. They're afraid that it will not be done in, in the way that solves the problem for 50 to 75 years. I think a lot of people have memories of the school built a, a gym slash cafeteria in that late 1980s build that became a largely useless space for at least for athletics and, and gymnasium purposes. And then later wasn't even a cafeteria. So what is that new gym space and, and should people feel confident that it's going to be the thing that, that solves a lot of those issues? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say they should feel confident and thinking about, as we talked about the practices and we're, we're looking at this already is going, looking at our, our, youth basketball practices, our middle school practices, boys and girls, JV1, JV2, varsity, looking at all that. We're very confident that a what we call a two-station gym with a third bay, you know, and you could have a main court running opposite the, the, the two courts. So you could have a, a main court in there, but it, essentially you could have three practices going on or you could have a full court space. And then with that with the current gym, main gym, that can be divided. You know, you're looking at five different practice spaces. Okay. What about baseball needs, track needs, soccer needs, or anything like that? Yeah, and I think, you know, right now, my understanding, I'm w- waiting for this those seasons to begin to see how they play out, but my understanding is that track and softball typically would take a, the after-school practice time, mm-hmm. and they would divide it between the Muriel gym and the two other gyms and the hallways for, for running. And then afterward, baseball then kind of consumes all three of those spaces. But if we're looking at new spaces, you're looking, okay, we have batting cages. You're going to have throwing spaces. You would really would be able to have both softball and baseball between, well, and actually if you include the mural gym as a space for at least pitchers and catchers or for throwing, mm-hmm. you potentially have six different spaces to, to practice in. No indoor games, though. <laughs> no, no. Miles, to your question, though, will it be enough? There's also the issue of would it be too much? If, if mm-hmm. we made, let's just say we, we added even more gym space and that gym space was not utilized, then there's an error in judgment and our speculation as to what this project should produce. That's um, our estimation at this point that given the number of sports that we support, the number of teams that we support, the number of children involved in those teams, our enrollment that supplies that, they're going into a six-station gymnasium opportunity, saying that we have a high school gym, this new gym at mid-school. We'll have to find a new name for this. <laughs> and, and this activity space, which was called the mural gym, that we then have enough facility going forward, and we will not over-provide we right. don't want to have space, build space, ask the community for space that won't be utilized. And I think kind of back to that question, too, is as we talked earlier about the, the elementary space, meaning why can we don't do more, that has a lot of life in it still. And, and as the board looked at the options that the construction company gave, they were also aware of being mindful of the community impact on, on the what a referendum would 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 cause and initially when we started down the path with this one even at 29.8 million the cost was 
hitting around 25 cents per thousand. And then in January, Beard adjusted that number and lowered it by six cents because the rates on bonds had a significant drop in mm-hmm. January. And those will hold, they believe, through April, which would then we'd be able to take advantage of that. And so it's that's where it fell. But the board was mindful of what, what the impact would be on our tax base. And so what opportunities are there for people moving forward to learn more about this, to see it for themselves, or to have input on what the final design looks like? Great question. I, and I appreciate setting us up for that one. <laughs> um, we, we've been trying to get out in the community as much as, as possible. We've been presenting at the village and township meetings. And um, last night was Sister Bay. A week a week before was Egg Harbor. And we have all of them scheduled moving through March. We've had set up some coffees for people to come in if they want. And coffees will be at time this Friday at 9 a.m. Um, we'll be at Bailey's 57 next Tuesday, February 28th at 9 a.m. We'll be at Sip Coffee House March 2nd at 9 a.m. And then several Blue Horse in March uh, 22nd, which is down the road. But if they check their their local municipality, those meetings, you'll see on upcoming ones, there'll be a, a, a line that says report by uh, myself mm-hmm. regarding the referendum if they want to get more information there. We also have the two, we call them community engagement meetings. That's that March 9th and March 15th, both at 6 o'clock, and they'll start in the high school IMC about 20, 25 minute presentation and then a tour of the spaces. And then we also have anyone interested in the kind of the planning and design part, and that's in direct contact with the architect that's working on the project. There is one schedule for this evening that we're postponing, but we will have one on March 8th at 6 p.m. at the high school IMC, and then on March 22nd. And then those, the referendum passes on April 4th, those meetings will continue And, and typically with community groups, you have anywhere from five to seven of those meetings. And so we anticipate we'll have several more after April 4th where people can be, be part of those. And we, those build on each other. So we're, if, you know, if people are interested and want to come, we hope they could come to, to all of them. All right. Sounds like a lot of touch points, a lot of opportunities for people to learn more. So um, I commend you for doing that because not every municipality will, or, or school will do that in these processes. So it's a lot of stuff to cr- cram into a short period of time. This April 4th election falls during Gibraltar's spring break. Am I correct on that? Correct. How concerned are you about that? Well, it, you know, it's... Or, or not concerned. Maybe yeah, I it's mean, good. I don't know. No, I mean, we, we, one thing, we want people to be informed and we want them to vote. We want to know what the community thinks about the project. And we have on our website, and that's another area for information, if they go to the Gibraltar School website, there's a, up on the upper left-hand corner, there's a referendum 2023 tab. And underneath there, there's a communication video, there's a fact sheet, there's a, a tax impact calculator. So someone can put their the value of their home in there and it'll show them what the uh, impact will be to their taxes. Or there's a link that would show them how to have their ballot mailed to them if they want to do early early ro- uh, voting. And there's just all the information about you know getting that ballot ahead of time or being able to go into their municipality two weeks prior to the election to vote. And we will be getting, uh, we'll, we'll have home mailers that will go to every household in our district that will talk about the referendum and that and that information that will come in early, early March to, to all the families. And we appreciate that this is the spring election. 
and there's more than the school referendum that's on the question on that ballot. There are all the state, the township, the county questions that will also be on the ballot. And, and so any person in our community who is interested in voting um, has that opportunity, and I'm certain we'll be taking advantage of the opportunities for early voting. Well, unless there's anything else to add, I think we covered most of it. No, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this project for our kids and community. And right. I, I would add to, in the opportunities, the school board meetings are still a place where any person can come and address the board with their concerns and interests and in support of this project. Uh, to date, one letter that I've received is about school parking. <laughs> That's the sole letter that I've received. <laughs> and we would welcome any person at a school board meetings, and we meet on the second Monday and the fourth Monday of each month at school at 7 o'clock. And we would welcome any person who wants to talk to us about this project. Always a good reminder. Well, Dr. Seifer, Brett, thank you both for joining us here on the podcast and, and walking through the details on this. And uh, hopefully the listeners found this helpful as this comes forward. I know a, a lot of our listeners are in this district or have homes in this district. So really appreciate you guys taking this opportunity to get as much information out there as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.